You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty God, you created us, and we thank you that we created us for your world and not this world. But you placed us in this world, and only for a short time, and we experience misery And we come up and we're cut down like a flower. We flee as shadows and are gone from this life. All of our lives is preparation for our deaths. We pray that you would spare us. In your mercy, hear our prayers that in the hour of our deaths, we may not fall away from thee. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Amen. If that seems an excessively gloomy prayer to open, I take it from the book of common prayer from the burial order at the commitment the graveside commitment and it is taken in turn from the book of job and we've discussed the book of job before in here and we'll touch on the book of job a little bit more but i thought it was an appropriate um, prayer to open a session that i refer to as dust to dust which again is another image taken from both both Genesis and Job, and it appears in the burial order. The Ecclesiastes sessions that we've had so far began in the first week with meeting the preacher, Kohelet in the Hebrew, and being led by his Socratic analysis of life through the meaning of life. He looked at wisdom and he looked at pleasure. And while he conceded that both wisdom and pleasure are better than their opposites, nevertheless, neither one bring fulfillment. And then in the second session, we looked at the question of time and whether our time on earth is really under all of our control. If if we really do, like the like the uh, poem Invictus, if we are really captains of our own souls. And the preacher concludes that no, we are not, that we dance along waltz, but we don't always call the tune. And then last week, we looked at the question of whether we can find fulfillment in life, even when life disappoints us, even when life treats us cruelly, or even when life doesn't treat us cruelly, if it doesn't pan out the way we thought that it would. And he offered a little bit of hope, a glimmer of hope, even though the answer is no, it does not always fulfill us. From time to time, the preacher gives us these little glimpses of hope to keep us going through this long, gloomy depressing survey on the human condition, but mostly he approaches it from a strictly secularist point of view. That is, he doesn't deny the existence of a divine creator. In fact, he stipulates a divine creator. But the way he analyzes the question is to lead us through the mental exercise of deciding whether it is all worth anything if that divine creator doesn't really care. That is, he's there, 
But what if he doesn't really care? And that's a depressing thought, but it's one that I think sets us up well for the gospel. I won't even begin to speculate about what it sets up a, a, a Jewish person for. But I will tell you that once I attended a funeral of a Jewish friend and there was a lot of Ecclesiastes in it, um, a, a whole lot, um, two or three times, and including the, uh, the, the section from chapter 3 about every time for every purpose under the sun, including death. Let's look at chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes. And I would like to start about the midway through. I'm going to read verses 10 through 13. And then in a moment we'll, we'll pick up a little bit further on. But Ecclesiastes chapter 8, beginning at the 10th verse. Then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness. And they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also was vanity. Stop for just a moment. Some translations take forgotten and use instead praised. And if you think the two don't make any sense side by side, we'll come back to it in a moment. But picking up in verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Turning back to that point in in verse 10. I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness. He's talking about something that is truly obnoxious. It's bad enough when people who do evil in society are celebrated and they are buried with all due pomp and ceremony and not a word is spoken about the evil that they did in their lives. But what about when the evil has been done actually in the church? in the place of holiness. There can be nothing that's worse than that. But this um, dichotomy between the translation, uh, they were forgotten in the city and they were praised in the city. If you think about it, they actually make sense. The Hebrew word must have, like a lot of Hebrew words do, multiple meanings. And they were praised because their iniquities were forgotten. That is, they were lifted up on pedestals because the, the proper treatment of what they actually did in life has been swept aside and we instead uh, wrap ourselves in these cheery little happy thoughts about now they're in a better place. Well... This is one time when Kohelet lets his mask slip. He's normally very even-handed, almost dispassionate, and strictly secular. 
This is what happens, and so what's the point? Is there anything, is there any advantage to being good as opposed to being evil? Is there any advantage to being fortunate and rich and wise as opposed to being none of those things? Because ultimately we all go to the same place. But here, this kind of evil is the sort of thing that makes Kohelet, the preacher, declare himself. The sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, so we may think that God's patience is evidence of God's forbearance, and that God's forbearance is evidence of his indifference, but it's not. See what he writes, it will not be well with the wicked, nor will the wicked prolong his days because he does not fear God. That is to say that God will set all things right. We've said this before. God brings everything into judgment. And at the moment of judgment, which Kohelet doesn't pretend that he knows what it is. He doesn't pretend that he knows what it's going to look like. But this righteous man writing here has declared a sense of outrage about it. And furthermore, he declares his certainty that God senses that outrage also. Picking up at verse 14 and reading through verse 17, There is a vanity which occurs on earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So I commended enjoyment, because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. For this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life which God gives him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. The preacher is saying that in society, sometimes the honor that belongs to the righteous instead goes to the wicked. And the, and the defilement that rightly belongs to the wicked sometimes is heaped upon the righteous. This is a, a judgment on our society and on our culture, and it's nothing new. You can all think of examples, I'm sure, right now. But ultimately, the preacher is expressing the belief that God will set it right, but we can't see it. We don't know it. We cannot find it. We're bothered by it. Because as he wrote in chapter 3, he has put, God has put eternity in all of our hearts. We protest it like King Lear shouting angrily into the storm, his bad fortune and his driven half mad with rage. We cannot understand the purpose of it, but Kohelet is saying that God will set it right. And in a way, the fact that we are outraged by it is evidence 
that God intends to put it right. That is, by putting eternity into our hearts, He gave us that moral sense that can feel outrage as opposed to simply accepting this as the way of the world and moving on. So our outrage at evil in the world is in fact evidence for God's purpose in putting that evil right. Otherwise, why create us to be as we are? Our problem is that we simply can't see it. We're stuck in time here. He sees it all. We can't. One other little point, and he says, I commended enjoyment, verse 15, because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. I don't read that as a sort of a, oh well, it's all pointless, might as well get drunk, like uh, like Peggy Lee, as we as we read from from her song last week. I don't read it that way at all. I see it more like the uh, better half of the Epicurean philosophy, which was that if life is 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 tough, it's a veil of tears. We enjoy ourselves because this is there are good things in life. We don't take our eye off the fact that there are evil things in life, but we're we're willing to think of the good things in life as something to be enjoyed. And we'll come back to that in a moment because he has more to add in chapter 9. I'd like to pick up chapter 9 and read verses 1 through 10, and then we'll um, read a little bit more. But... You can follow along if you have it. For I considered all this in my heart, so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean to him who sacrifices, and to him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath is he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to all the living there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife to whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you were going. 
lest that sound too gloomy itself, I think it reflects a, an attitude that comes down through all of human history, or at least Kehillat is setting that up for us to consider. The deists of early America thought of God as the celestial watchmaker, that is, the creator who made all of the universe and wound it up and then set it down and walked away from it, indifferent to how it ran, just as a watchmaker is indifferent to how the watch continues to run. It runs on its own. It's wound up. It goes. Well, if we think that God is only the celestial watchmaker, then we are not alone. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul wrote this. I'm beginning at the 18th verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Hold that last thought, we'll come back to it. But Paul is expressing in Romans pretty much the same thing that the deists express, and that Kohelet is setting up here. That is, that we know the existence of God from the world around us. The natural world gives us all the evidence we need to understand that there is, in fact, a divine creator. The question that troubles Kohelet, or that he wants us to trouble ourselves with, the question that the deist resolved with the answer no, is, does God care? Well, of course, Paul was writing on the other side of the empty tomb, the same side as we live on. And so we know where Paul is going to come out on it. But the question eternally in all of mankind is, does he care? Here, unlike in chapter 8, where Kohelet is talking about the evil in culture, Kohelet is in chapter 9 writing about the things that are just kind of the natural world things. The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath is he who fears an oath. That is to say, it rains on the righteous just as well as it rains on the wicked. In this natural world, in our vain lives, vanity expressed as, as the preacher expresses it, we have, we have no control. As, um, as I read in a George Will column this morning, if you want to cause God to laugh, just tell him about your plans. Well, this is a good example. Um, no matter how we lay it out, this is, this is what we the righteous are going to experience. One um, cultural point, this uh, reference to dogs and lions, a living dog, verse 4b, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Well, 
my reaction to that is, well, of course. <laughs> a living dog is better than a living lion, too. I mean, lions are great to watch on the screen, but I don't want to be near one. I, the, a, of course a dog is better than a lion. It, it, the dog wants to wants to lick my face. A lion wants to eat it. But in the cultural context to which this was written, and even in the Middle East today, dogs are not the dogs are not seen the way we see them. They are in, anywhere in Scripture you see a reference to dogs. You can be sure that the writer is drawing on this impression of dogs as dirty scavengers. Remember the parable that Jesus told to his followers about the poor man Lazarus. Remember Lazarus was. Um, was reduced to begging for scraps outside of the gate of the rich man's house, and the dogs would lick the sores of poor old Lazarus. This was not a good thing. Uh, you might have let your dog lick the sores of your children, you know, if they if they fell and scraped their knee, and the dog lick it. And but in in the first century, this was not something that you did. This was an image that is no good. So the image here is. Even a noble lion who is dead is not as well off as a a dirty scavenger dog who is alive. And the the metaphor is that while we are living, we still have hope. We have hope of finding meaning which no longer exists once we are in the grave. As long as we live, we have a chance to find out and discover what is true. So unlike the first passage, this is, uh, this is a, a reflection on the state of nature, on the state of our vain lives under the sun. Pick up um, verse 11. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know in his life, like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time, when it falls suddenly upon them. More of this impression that we don't call the tune. But think back to the uh, end of the passage that we read read before. Eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Live joyfully with your spouse and enjoy your time in this world with your spouse. All of these are the gifts of God. And the uh, impression here, for God has already accepted your works, is that this is ordained by God, that we enjoy the good things of life, the things that that give us pleasure, that give us comfort, are His gifts. And so we don't turn away from them. We, um, we accept them and we glorify God in our pleasure from them. Look at this line, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. That was a verse that I learned when I was a child growing up Baptist. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. We, we read the original King James Version. Uh, you probably remember this. 
You may be reminded of a line in the movie Chariots of Fire when uh, the Scottish runner is um, is being spoken to by his father, the stern Presbyterian missionary in China, who's giving his blessing on the runner's efforts to continue his running career. Remember what he said? He said, Eric, you can praise God by peeling a spud if you peel it to perfection. And what he's saying is, these earthly gifts that you got are for being used. You praise God by using those gifts that God has given. And uh, that, is the, that is the lesson that we get in chapter 9. Before I run out of time, let me quickly go to chapter 10 because I want to turn back to that last line from the reading in Romans, professing to be wise, they became fools. Because this is going to be where the preacher is going to turn almost all of his Socratic pretense to asking if there's any point. He's going to start showing his attitude here. He's going to start in chapter 10. I'm reading from the first verse, and then I'm going to skip down. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. Even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom, and he shows everyone that he is a fool. Skipping down to verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. The words of his mouth begin with foolishness, and the end of his talk is raving madness. A fool also multiplies words. No man knows what is to be who can tell him what is to be after him. The labor of fools wearies them, for they do not even know how to go to the city. This last line is a bit thick in the translation, but my commentary says that what it really implies is that a fool cannot even follow a straight path to an obvious um, objective. The, the, the way into the city is a wide road and the city is up ahead, but the fool can't even follow that. And another um, strange bit of... Uh, of, of translation, dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor, is another way of saying that dead flies make even sweet perfume give off a bad odor. Before we get too wrapped up in that metaphor, think of what he's comparing it to, that words of wisdom can be spoiled. A reputation for being wise can be ruined by a few moments of folly and foolishness. And suddenly we're seeing the fool in a different light from the way we were seeing the fool before. Not the babbling idiot or the, the uh, thoughtless frat boy who, who fritters away his years in college in, in, in mindless drinking like some of those scenes from Animal House but rather the pretentious, bombastic, know-it-all 
professing to be wise, they made themselves fools. The people who look down on the world and have all the answers are the fools. The people who tell us that they have all the answers are the fools. I don't want to make a political point here, but the fool... um, The wise man's heart is at his right hand, but the fool's heart is at his left. Again, not making a political point, the the translation seems to say that the wise man's heart leads him aright, and the fool's heart leads him astray. Incidentally, the Latin word for right, the direction right, is dexter which is the root of our word dexterity. Does anybody know what the Latin word for left is? Sinister. Sinister. That's right. Sinister. Um, I'm not making that up. I couldn't make that up. Um, and I'm still not going to make a political point out of that. But, again, that this um, right and left is an old metaphor. It's a kind of a rhetorical device that the wise man... Um, has the heart that leads him to the right, to what is right, and the fool leads him astray. And what I think we come away with is this impression that the fool is not the the drunken clown, the court jester who exists just to make us all laugh and giggle, and it's it, it's there's no point to it. He's the worldly wise man. That's a term that Frank Limehouse used to use. He borrowed it from um, The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Um, the worldly wise man is the, is the um, pompous know-it-all with the secular point of view. The, wise, the truly wise man, the wise man who's not the worldly wise man, is the one who is wise in those things which are celestial. I'd like to finish with a short passage from the first epistle to the Corinthians, beginning at the 18th verse. Chapter 1, beginning at the 18th verse. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? That's the answer. The answer is that the real fool is the worldly wise man. The wise among us are those who consider that we are dust and that we look to what is beyond the dust. And for that we can say, thanks be be to God. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.